Welcome to the Audacity to Podcast, episode 80, Turning Podcasting into a Business with Gordon Firemark. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Audacity to Podcast. I'm Daniel J. Lewis, and this is a how-to podcast about podcasting and using Audacity. This is where I give you the guts and teach you the tools to podcast with passion, organization, and dialogue. And today, we're going to take a little approach of what about making money with your podcast? Now, I've talked about making money with your podcast before, but this time, we're going to approach it from what if that's your actual purpose. It's not just a hobby that you'd like to check out uh, how you could possibly make money while you're doing your hobby. But we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit too. But we're going to talk about how you can turn your podcasting into a business or is it already a business? Something for you to think about as you are podcasting is you might already technically be considered a business. So we'll talk about that. And I'm so happy to again have with us in our final episode of this series for now of podcasting and the law. I have Gordon Firemark with us. And Gordon Firemark is author of the podcasting uh, book that I highly recommend that you can check out over at the audacitypodcast.com slash podcast law book. That's my affiliate link for the podcast blog and new media producers legal survival guide. It's a long title, but it's got some great information for it for podcasters and bloggers about how to use the law properly and how to use copyrighted things or not to use them and all of that stuff we've been talking about in these last several episodes of the audacity to podcast. So if you haven't heard the last few episodes, we talked about copyright laws, about trademarks, about privacy policies, disclaimers, uh, other contracts and many things like that. And today we're talking about this aspect of turning your podcasting into a business. If you're interested in just getting started making some money with your podcast, then I recommend go back to episode 39 over at theaudacitytopodcast.com slash 39. And you can listen to that episode where I talked about five ways to make money from your podcast or blog. Now, if you're already doing those things, then as you're going to learn, you might already be considered a business as you're podcasting. But if you're not, or if you are, whatever the case, there are many things to consider and many questions to be answered and taxes and different things. So I'm really happy that Gordon Firemark continued this conversation with us about turning your podcasting into a business, what it takes, what you can and can't do to some extent. And we had a great conversation here. So Listen to this and also check out his website over at firemark.com. That's F-I-R-E-M-A-R-K. And you can follow him on twitter.com slash gfiremark. Gordon Firemark, thank you again for joining me for this discussion. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about podcasting as a business. And do you podcast as a business? Yes, it, it is a business. I guess it fits the definition of a business. I don't do it as a, with a specific intent to make a profit from it. I have other purposes, but because I have a sponsor, it certainly looks like a business to the outside world. 
And um, it is a commercial venture. It's not just me being a hobbyist, essentially. And and um, although that's sort of my how I feel about it personally, um, the outside world may look at it a little differently. And that's the purpose for having this conversation at all. Um, I'm going to turn our, our outline uh, on its face a little bit, Daniel, and, and we'll start with when is a podcast likely to be viewed as a business. It really comes down to whether there's some commercial component to it. Um, some of the cases on this, most of the cases have dealt with blogs, actually, and, and not so much with podcasts, but by analogy, we can relate to it. A blog that's just a blog, someone's putting up their opinion, you know, their, I don't know, theater reviews or, or talking about whatever they're interested, you know, fishing for striped bass or something like that, um, that can still just look like a hobby. When it becomes an issue is when the IRS says, wait a minute, you're making money from this. And therefore, it needs to be treated as a business and you need to file your taxes a different way or something. Or the flip side, when you're running it as a business or you're filing taxes as though your blog is a business, but it's not making any money. And so the IRS says, oh, no, that's a hobby. You don't get to take tax deductions for the things you spend on your hobby. You know, it can go either way. Some of the cases, though, also dealt with the issue of a business license. Local local ordinances might require that any business operating within the city has to pay essentially a tax to get a business license to operate their business. Well, you're running a podcast or a blog from your home, and once a week you sit down and you record a half an hour thing and you put it up on the web and you're done, right? Well, doesn't look very commercial, right? But what if you have Google AdSense on your website? Or, you know, a little banner ad on the side or something. That you're, and there's a product being sold that's maybe not even your product. Maybe it's not even an affiliate link. It's just, you know, Google AdSense. And you're making $3.27 a year from your Google AdSense ad. Um, that's going to look like a business. It's commercial. And so you're going to be on the hook for those taxes, those business license uh, fees. And... Um, it's been a problem. So be mindful of what you actually have on your website around your podcast. Whether you mention a sponsor in the show, you may have other products and, and things being advertised, and so you'll be treated as a business. Okay. Scott Island sent in a voicemail asking uh, this question about podcasting as a business and mm-hmm. and making money from it. Mm-hmm. Hey, Daniel. It's Scott Island from thebaseballexperience.com podcast. The season started, everybody. Um, anyway, I wonder if you could provide some insight as to how is the best way to get tax benefits from running your show because they're doing a lot of business a lot of uh, purchasing of equipment and such to build hopefully a business for folks mostly eventually and i wanted to know if you knew of how is the best way to get that rolling i'm assuming that in corporations involved and other stuff and, you know, just the general benefits to making your podcast an official business and stuff like that. Because I'm interested in possibly looking into that or finding out if there's a way to benefit from that. Anyway, thanks, man. Thank you for that voicemail, Scott. So, Gordon, you already mentioned basically defining that line between what's a hobby and what's a business. Yeah. So, like, like Scott said, let's say we want to take this actually the business direction what does that take? Okay. Well, I'm not a tax expert, so I'm, I'm hesitant to answer a question about the best, best way to get tax benefits out of things. What I can tell you is that the IRS and probably your local taxing authority as well are going to look at whether or not you're making legitimate 
effort and you know whether there's a, a real chance that this is a money making venture in in categorizing something as a business uh, for the purposes of whether you can take deductions against income for running that business. So you know if if you're um, if you're selling those AdSense and and making a few bucks. The IRS might say, hey, that's not a business. That's a, that's a, a hobby. And so you don't get to deduct $6,000 for all the equipment that you bought to fit out your studio. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> that local uh, government is going to say, wait a minute, that's a business. You've got AdSense on your thing. <laughs> so you're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to pay the local business license fee. Um, there's no good, good answer there. The good news is it's not about whether you form a corporation or a limited liability company or, or a, you know, a partnership or any of those kinds of things. Um, you don't have to do any of those things in order to be treated as a business for, for tax purposes. Uh, there may be advantages to forming an entity. Uh, it's going to depend on the income level that you're at. I wouldn't say that it's necessary to do it at the starting out phase unless you have one of the other two reasons for um, for forming an entity. And those reasons, these are the primary reasons. One is that you need to raise capital. So you're going to sell off shares or membership interests in a company, right? Uh, if you're going to, if you're going to sell shares in order to raise the money you need to build your business, then you need to form some kind of an entity to do that. Or, and, or you need some insulation from the possibility of liability, so the you know in a corporation or limited liability company, the owners of the business are treated as separate from the business itself. And if the business incurs a debt or a liability or or suffers a you know a loss of some sort, that loss doesn't automatically give people the right to go after the owners of the company. So those are the two reasons to form an entity: insulation from liability or uh, capital raising. Um, other than that, if you don't have big concerns about either of those, then being a sole proprietor is, is just fine. Um, and there are ways to address the liability concern that don't involve the complexity and, and jumping through hoops that forming a company might. Um, there's one other reason you might want to form a corporation. And again, depending on the income level, you may find that it's cheaper in terms of taxes to pay corporate income tax on the income of the business first and then pay dividends out to you as an individual owner um, because you're, the, the scenario would be that the owner's tax bracket is so high that they're actually paying more, uh, a higher percentage than they would if it was taxed first at the corporate level. So they keep, they'd be able to keep more money in their own pocket essentially. But that's a complicated analysis that you, need, you really need to talk to your tax advisors about to do that. So let's look at, I, I can think of three or three and a half specific examples here of mm -hmm. situations. And I'd like to know if you think these people should treat it as a business or not. Uh, first example is someone has full-time job mm -hmm. and they're podcasting on the side. Maybe they have affiliate links in their podcast. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't. What should they do? Uh, on the side, you know, again, if they're not making any real significant money from it, I think they should think of it as a hobby and treat it as a hobby for the purposes of, of federal taxation. Don't try to deduct lots of expenses, you know, for the trip to the Blog World Expo and, and the, um, the, you know, purchasing a new mixer and microphone and, and that kind of stuff because the IRS isn't going to go for it. Uh, that said, if your local authorities require a business license, um, 
you know, check and find out whether that applies to you. You may be able to fly under the radar and that's what a lot of folks do. But if they catch you, you're, you're due for back taxes and things too. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a cost to benefit analysis that needs to go on. Another issue that comes up when you're doing something like that looks like a business from your home, for example, is check to make sure that the local, uh, ordinances, the local zoning actually permits the operation of a home-based business. And what are the the criteria there? I've heard of situations where um, where the ordinance permitted home based businesses as long as there were no visitors coming to the to the to the site. Um, you know, so a screenwriter could write from home, but a doctor couldn't have patients come to his house. Um, uh, and also, if you live in a condo complex or, or a planned community that has a, a covenants conditions, covenants and restrictions or, or, you know, homeowners rules or something like that. You have to find out whether you're going to be violating those rules by building a studio in your, in your spare bedroom or something like that. Uh, that actually came up for me <laughs> in my old condo. Um, somebody was walking by a window and saw my gear and my microphone and things. What are you doing? Are you doing a radio show or something? Yeah, it's against the rules. Yeah, we Ooh. have this whole conversation. Um, uh, that's where being a lawyer comes in handy. <laughs> um, so what does he need to do in that scenario? Probably not much. You know, maybe if you're, if you're going to be receiving money and you need to open a bank account in that name of that business and you want to take some deductions, you probably have to file something, a DBA or something like that if you're going to operate under a business name. DBA is another term for a fictitious business name statement. And that's usually just a, a way of sort of publishing in, in the local newspapers for a few, a few weeks, uh, identifying information about how to, who's connected with this business. But for, and I know this is getting slightly into tax, but for uh, the most important part of this, the filing and legal side, mm-hmm. would be reporting the income someone makes, correct? Yeah. And it would happen probably on a Schedule C um, form. So if you're, if you're looking like a business and, and you're going to take the itemized deductions for things, you have to file schedule C for the business to offset the income against those, those expenses. Okay. Or now, the expenses against the income. Now let's look at this, uh, from another, uh, third perspective or second mm-hmm. perspective is someone who, uh, well myself, partially myself. Okay. Uh, I run my own business, so I've got my whole business set up yep. and many others out there do something similar where they run their own business mm-hmm. and they podcast, but they advertise their business in their podcast. How should they be treating their podcast? Is it a marketing extension of their business? Is it actually part of their business or is it still a hobby? That's how I treat mine. Uh, my entertainment law update podcast is an extension of my law practice. And so I file one, uh, return for, for that. And my podcast expenses and income just go onto the schedule C for that particular, um, particular business. Okay. And of course, in anything tax related, getting a CPA to look at it is the best thing. Mm -hmm. And then how about that person who wants to actually make podcasting their business? by basically being a radio host, but of course, online, on the internet, and getting paid to talk into a microphone and publish that. How should they be treating it? I I think the same. You know, it comes down to how much money are you making in any given year, and does it make financial sense for you to have the entity in place? Now, again, if you're going to be having people coming to your studio to do recording, and you're going to be um, you know, I don't know, producing shows for other people and things like that, you might want to think about 
the the corporation or limited liability company model as one of the ways one of the shields against liability in case somebody gets their nose out of joint and decides to sue. Um, but insurance is also a, an important component of that. Insurance is a component for everybody. If you're doing anything that's quasi business like, and there's some risk that somebody could get hurt or or some form of injury could be suffered, uh, having some insurance in place makes a lot of sense. So what I hear you thinking or saying, and I want to see if uh, this is a good summary of it, is it really comes down to basically two things. Is it a hobby or a business? And the other thing is, are we making money from it? Is that a pretty good summary? Yeah. yeah, And and to a certain extent, the second question answers the first. If you're making money from it, it's going to look like a business and you, and you ought to think about it as a business. If you're really just getting it out there to get it out there, then maybe it's a hobby and, and maybe you shouldn't, well, certainly if you're not making any money, you, you shouldn't try to offset your expenses against it. And I think this is an area where sometimes if we look, if we take the same kind of situation, but apply it to different mm-hmm. uh, purposes or different um, hardware, a different business. Yeah. Yeah. If like, if we are talking about model airplanes, well, can you deduct your expenses for buying model airplanes and paint and all of that? No, that's definitely a hobby unless that's your business. Right. And how about skiing? Yeah. Here's a great one. Okay. So, or, or playing tennis or golf or whatever, you know, unless you are a professional skier or tennis player or golfer, paying for your skis and your lift tickets and those kinds of things is that's a personal expense. It's a hobby. It's a, it's a uh, recreation. If you're a per, if you're a professional skier though, and you need new skis three, four times a year and you need clothes to wear when skiing and you need lift tickets and transportation and travel to the various ski destinations, those are business expenses. So most of us who go skiing aren't going to think of ourselves as a professional skier and wouldn't dream of trying to deduct the cost of, of a pair of skis. Yeah. So put it in that context and it sort of comes out the same way. Even, I guess you could have a semi-pro skier or a semi-pro tennis player who, uh, you know, maybe gets, you know, paid to give lessons here and there to, to the kids in the community. Um, but more than likely that would be under an employment relationship anyway and you don't have to worry about the business component of that. Okay. Another aspect of this, of kind of being a business and podcasting and blogging, is are we journalists or members of the press? <laughs> yes, no, and maybe. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a recent case that that is dealing with this very issue of whether or not a blogger is a journalist. Uh, actually, it's it's been finalized. This particular blogger was not was held not to be a journalist. And the reason it's an an issue is that many states have what's called a reporter's shield law. And the reporter's shield law basically says that a journalist can't be um, held liable for, uh, uh, you know, to, to disclose the the source of, of their, um, of their information. Uh, They, they, you know, journalists might, might stand on integrity and say, I'm not going to reveal my sources. Uh, It might also provide some protection against libel and slander, um, uh, libel cases and uh, privacy and those kind of things, you know, uh, the first amendment stuff comes into play, but in order to qualify for that, you have to be a journalist. Uh, the, the case in question happened in the state of Oregon, I believe. And it was a woman who had started a blog. Um, actually what she did was she registered dozens and dozens of domain names and she blogged about, um, a, a particular person and a particular company by name, and trashed them on the internet. And because she had so many domains up with all this stuff, it was essentially um, 
taking over this person's uh, internet presence with all this negative information. And then what she did and, and what made her look not like a journalist was she then offered uh, reputation cleanup services <laughs> to these people. And um, when she was sued for defamation about false statements that she made about this particular guy who happened to be a lawyer, um, she um, it was held that no, she was actually running this sort of a racket designed to make money from trashing people. Hmm. And uh, so that was not going to, she wasn't going to be subject to the journalist shield law. Uh, and so the libel case was able to proceed against her. And um, I think there was a judgment against her and a significant amount of money that she may never be able to pay. But uh, the point being, there's an issue. Now, the, the other way that this issue has come up is when um, a particular blog um, gets a, 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 preview look at the new iPhone or something like that. And Apple goes after them and tries to seize their materials and shut them down and, and get their material taken off. The, the blogger in that situation is able to say, wait a minute, I am doing journalism here. This is legitimate interest, you know, of, of public interest to people and you can't shut me down. And the courts have in, in, in an, in a particular case involving Apple held exactly that. Um, that the journalist was protected and did not have to disclose where he got that iPhone to look at and um, and couldn't be – they weren't going to take down the, the website. Um, that's a few years ago and since then there have been some you know controversies over this and it's gone back and forth a bit. The point is um, the courts are going to look at whether you're acting like a journalist and, and behaving like a journalist. Uh, hobbyist – who does you know theater reviews? This is another situation that just came up actually in a theater law class I teach. The IRS said that the theater reviewer couldn't treat um, the expenses of reviewing and going to the theater and the t- theater tickets and those kinds of things as business expenses um, because she wasn't a real journalist. Meanwhile, in another place, a real journalist who got freebie theater tickets, the debate was: Do we have to declare that as income? And uh, and the court in that situation said, um, no, it's part and parcel of what they do as a li- for a living and being hmm. provided access to these shows. You know, so it, it goes both ways. And unfortunately, some of these issues are are undecided <laughs> to date. So much of it really comes down to perception and behavior. It sounds well, like, yeah, yeah, behavior more than perception. I mean, it's, it's going to come down to what the evidence shows the court if it ever gets to court about how this person operated. If you act like a business, look like a business, you know, if it smells like a duck, it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Um, if you want to be treated as a journalist, then act like one and follow the journalistic um, uh, protocols of, you know, multiple sources and, um, uh, you know, getting people to go on record and, and, and be credible as sources, you know, those kinds of things. And being fair and balanced uh, to use a an over abused <laughs> phrase lately, but you know, being present, presenting things in a fair way with, with the opposing point of view, at least given an opportunity to, to express itself. Uh, all of those kinds of things come under sort of journalistic ethics. You want to be treated like a journalist, do what journalists do, even though you're not published in a major quote newspaper or television scenario. Um, and the courts are coming around to the notion that online is a different thing and some of the rules are different, but, the more you act like you intend to be a journalist, the more you will be treated like it. I had this come up in two different ways in my history. Uh, one of them is 
reviewing movies for uh, one of my mm -hmm. podcasts that's currently on hiatus. Mm -hmm. The company that sends me those tickets is more concerned with how quickly can I release a review yeah. to help assist the movie. And they're not at all concerned, actually, with the size of my audience, just how quickly can I review this sure. and post something legitimate out there that will help the publicity of the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, another uh, group, though, uh, ABC, mm -hmm. uh, the TV station who hosts the Once Upon a Time TV show, and I've got the podcast about Once Upon a Time over at OncePodcast.com. Yeah. They recently finally approved us for press access to their mm -hmm. uh, resources because I was able to demonstrate. At first, they said, no, bloggers, podcasters, we don't consider them press. But I kept <laughs> coming back, and after a few months, uh, I could then demonstrate to them, look, I've got this massive audience now. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm on the top of many Google relevant Google searches. I'm the top podcast in all of these directories and all of this would you please reconsider? And then they did look at it and they reconsidered and approved it because they saw how seriously I was taking it. Yeah. Yeah. And I dare say if you had been saying negative stuff about them, you would have heard from them a lot sooner. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hey, wait a minute. You know, that's not cool. You're, you're the press is trashing us, you know, but, um, you're not, the, you're not press when you're asking for them to give you something. Essentially. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and some of that is just, you know, who's at the, at the helm of that particular PR operation. And I, I dare say that, you know, if you'd have been a different show on ABC, ABC, show, ABC has a, a track record of, of dealing well with bloggers, um, over some of their very popular TV shows. I'm thinking of lost, for example, yes. which I know you, you did a while back and, you know, they were, they really embraced the blogging community. Yes. Now taking this a different direction, kind of looking back at the profit aspect of podcasting, what if I'm making money from a podcast, whether it be advertising or affiliate links or donations, uh, which, by the way, I, was, I would assume, and I'd have to talk to CPA for this, but donations would also have to be taxed, probably. Uh, so, oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. So uh, have a podcast making money directly from the podcast or kind of indirectly, but basically from the audience of that podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of contract that we might need to have for co-hosts who host with us are being a part of this content that is generating revenue? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Uh, if you have a co-host and you're planning to share your money with them, share the income with them, um, you need to do something. Well, it's in everybody's interest to specify how that money will be shared and under what circumstances and so on. Um, maybe it's, you know, it's going to look like a partnership to, uh, to the, to the outside world, to the law. Um, if you're both making some money and so you might need to file again, we're coming back to tax. You might need to file a partnership tax return if there's a, a meaningful amount of money coming in. And then each of you declares your share of the income on, on your returns. But if you're just going to essentially pay your co-host for coming on and being a part of your show, then they may look like an, uh, like an independent contractor or something like that. And again, you need to be careful about how these things look, uh, you know, to the average, um, lawyer, tax inspector or, or court. Um, and so having something in writing, it helps do that. So let's say it's, they're really just coming on as a co-host, but you're, you know, they're not your partner. They're not responsible for any of the other operation of the business or, or they're not covering their share of expenses. They're just getting a fee for each episode they do. 
a percentage of what that episode generates, for example, you get that in writing, put it down on, on paper. The important thing is to, you know, if you are going to say after the deduction of the expenses, then it needs to define that, you know, is it net profit of the show or is it gross receipts of the show? Um, that's, uh, some of the, some of the issues that you want to worry about. This is not a situation where you necessarily need to have a lawyer. You can shoot an email over that says, dear so-and-so, thanks so much for agreeing to be my co-host. As we discussed, when the show makes money, I will first deduct the expenses of the show. And then I will say, I will give you, you know, 30% of what it earns. And uh, if this is acceptable, just, you know, let me know and you're good to go. You've got a, a reasonably enforceable contract. Getting that down on a piece of paper with two blue ink signatures is a little better um, you know, so far we don't see a lot of these kinds of things coming up in, in the courts, but, uh, um, there's something called the best evidence rule. If that email is the best version of proof of that situation, then it'll, it'll be enforceable. So this, I think ties in somewhat with what we talked about in our last episode over at the audacity to podcast.com slash 79, when we were talking about release forms. So there's no requirement that I make some kind of profit-sharing contract with a co-host, correct? No. Uh, the The danger of not having something in writing is that the co-host thinks of him or herself as a partner and therefore entitled to half of the money. Mm. So if you're not intending to share the money, it's also a good idea to say – Hey, thanks for agreeing to be this. You, you understand it's a freebie and, you know, and you can sometimes do that in that dis, not disclaimer in that, um, release language that we talked about at the beginning of, uh, last, uh, episode where we said, you know, you say, I'm recording this and you understand I can use it and I don't owe you anything and I can use it forever. And if the person says, yeah, sure, then you're good. You don't have an obligation to share the money again, better to have it in writing than not if you can. Okay. Now let's look at the bad news side of things. Whether we're podcasting as a business or as a hobby, what if we get some kind of lawyer letter, like notifying us of trademark infringement or the the famous DMCA takedown notice or anything like that from a lawyer uh, for our content, our site, or something we said, whatever, what do we do? The infamous nasty gram, as many of us lawyers like to refer to them. <laughs> um, you know, it sort of depends what it's about, but the, the short answer is you have to deal with it. If you, if you hear from a lawyer, somebody's making claims against you, you do need to respond to it in, in some way. But be careful not to respond way too fast. Um, DMCA notices are the one exception. If you get a DMCA notice, it's, a, it's essentially an order, an order, a demand that you take down the infringing material off of the web immediately. And the reason it has to be done immediately is that that is part of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act's um, guideline. What that says, and this is something important, by the way, if you're if you're putting up user generated content, stuff that's you know your your listeners contributing stuff to you or, or whatever, or comments on the blog, it's a good idea. In fact, it's it's almost the most important thing you can do is register um, your copyright agent with the copyright office in, in Washington. And um, there's a, a, a form that you have to fill out on a, a small fee that you have to pay. Um, but if you have a registered agent in the, in the copyright office and you get a DMCA notice and you take the appropriate action by taking down the material, the offending material, um, you are essentially safe from being sued for copyright infringement by that user generated material. Now, if it's your stuff you've created, you're not exempt. You, 
you're you're on the hook for your own creations. But if some someone else has contributed something to your show and it infringes, you are um, you may be able to take advantage of the what's called the safe harbor under the DMCA. So you do need to respond to that pretty much immediately. Within 24 hours is the is the best practice on DMCA notices. The rest of the time, uh, unless the notice specifies a time frame, you know you you have a little bit of time to to think about it, to mull it, and to prepare a a, a reasoned response. Um, in my book, I, I list a sort of a list of what to do. Don't panic. Don't overreact. Mm-hmm. Notify your insurance carrier if you have one. And, and if it's something that the insurance will deal with, they may uh, be responsible for paying your lawyer to defend you in the situation. Don't respond too quickly. Um, give yourself some time to think it through and talk with lawyers and, and so on if it's appropriate to do that. And, but don't underreact either. Do respond to it and deal with it. Um, then you know, get some good advice, and then prepare a a reasoned response if it's appropriate to do so. There there are some situations where no response is the right response, and um, you don't want to give away you know information that would be usable in court or something like that. And then you know, just sort of be prepared for what's coming next, which could be uh, a lawsuit, or it could be you filing a lawsuit against them because they've threatened you. Uh, those kinds of things. So. I guess I would say the answer is if you get a letter from a lawyer and and you don't understand it or you don't think there's any merit to it, but you feel like you need to you know reply or deal with it, um, this is when you want to talk to a lawyer. Doing it yourself is probably not a smart move, with the exception of the DMCA thing. The other thing about DMCA, and I'm jumping around here, but I want to say if you get a DMCA notice and you take something down, and the user who created that content that you took down. Uh, argues and, and wants to issue what they call a counter notice, um, uh, then you, ha- you, you put it back up and you let the two, the two other parties, let's you and him fight. <laughs> you let them duke it out in court. And again, you're still eligible for that safe harbor as long as you have followed the, the letter of the law in there. So um, you know, talking with a lawyer is important at that point. So I guess I'm saying if you get a lawyer letter, give me a call. <laughs> and, and some of this could change if I know the stop online piracy act yep. was shot down but now there's this new thing that's coming in that uh, i forget the name of it but it's uh yeah it's going to rear its ugly head over and over again until something goes oh down. yeah so so this stuff is frequently attempting to change yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and that's the problem is that there's it's sort of a moving target but what to do in in case somebody is upset with what you're doing <laughs> is a moving target and um you need to check in with someone who follows the stuff and pays attention but you know, if you if you take reasonable precautions, you get the releases. You you don't well, tell lies about people. You act like a journalist if that's what what's involved, and you get you know backup documentation for your assertions, and you don't steal people's content. You're going to be in pretty good shape, and and unlikely to see much of this kind of thing. Okay, great. Anything else that we need to know about business side of podcasting, uh, or hobby side, or profit, or anything like that? Well, you know, we haven't really talked about the monetization um, side of things, and and so let let's do that fairly quickly. You know, we assuming you are thinking about this as being a business, you're going to be looking for ways to make money, and there's a number of ways to do that: sponsorship, um, affiliate relationships, and um, of course, there there can be subscription formats to things. Um, and it's important to just be mindful of what the rules are when you're doing these things. Um, a sponsorship is a fairly open uh, structure. You know, somebody is paying you 
uh, to to either advertise on or be the sponsor of your show. Um, advertising is where you place a you know sort of commercial message on the site in in the post or in the body of the of the show, and you know it's like what we see on TV or in in a magazine or, or banner ads on websites. Um, it, it involves a payment of a fee on a either per episode basis or a per listener basis or something like that, and um, it can be pretty targeted. That's one of the advantages of using podcasts and blogs as as advertising media is you. You know, you, since you're paying for the number of viewers, you're paying less to reach a few hundred people who are really genuinely interested in what the blog is about or this podcast is about than you would if you put it on a television ad where you're paying to reach you know, millions and millions of people, only a very small fraction of whom are interested in the subject. Mm-hmm. Same with sponsorship. Sponsorship is, is as much about getting the brand name out there just for brand recognition um, as, as selling a particular product in most cases. And then there's the affiliate stuff. For those who don't know how affiliate ads work, it's basically um, the the um, content creator, the blogger, the podcaster, the, the the media creator makes a deal with the product owner or the seller of the product that if I help you sell this product, if I send you a, a lead who buys it, you're going to pay me a commission. So commissioned ad, a commission sales job, basically. Um, the problem is that Affiliate ads often look like uh, a product review or a recommendation from the blogger that says, you know, I use this product and I love it and it's fantastic. And what they don't say is when they link out to it that if and, and if you follow this link and you go to Amazon and buy it, I'm getting a little bit of a, of a payment from Amazon for each time someone buys it. The law now says, um, since 2009, the law has said if you do these kinds of things, you have to disclose the fact that um, that it's it's an affiliate relationship and you're going to make some money from it. So you have to say so, essentially. Um, and, and so that's it. And then likewise, there's similar rules about testimonials. Uh, they have to be accurate and not misleading. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, that just has to be fair and, and reasonable for the audience to, to perceive. You have to disclose that... Um, the perform what the generally expected performance of the product would be, and so on, and uh, and there you go. So the FTC has these guidelines in place that that help uh, establish this stuff. Okay. Well, Gordon Firemark, thank you so much for these last several episodes that we've had covering many aspects of podcasting and the law. And we might someday uh, get back together if we collect enough extra questions and just have a. FAQ session together. That would be fantastic. And I really appreciate your time on here. It's been a real pleasure. I enjoy doing this kind of thing and uh, working with the likes of you has been fantastic. Thank you. Where can people find you on the internet? Well, my website is firemark.com. F-I-R-E-M-A-R-K is the spelling of my last name. On most of the social media sites, the Twitters and LinkedIn's and Facebooks of the world, I am gfiremark. And um, you can email me directly, gfiremark at firemark.com. Great. And you've got your uh, podcasting. What's the title of the book again? The Podcast Blog and New Media Producers Legal Survival Guide at podcastlawbook.com. Great. Yeah. And I do highly recommend that for everyone out there to check out and learn more about each of these things and to check out your site. Yeah. And folks can listen to my podcast if you're interested in entertainment law more generally, um, entertainmentlawupdate.com. Great. Thank you so much, Gordon, for joining me for these episodes. Thanks for having me. 
I really appreciated that Gordon took the time to record these past several episodes. And again, if you haven't heard them, please go back and listen to some great content that Gordon has shared with us about copyrights and trademarks and privacy policies and disclaimers and procedures and contracts. And now learning about podcasting as a business. So I'm really grateful for this expertise that he brings to this conversation or brought and will continue to bring as well. Because like we mentioned, if you have questions, and you probably do still have questions about all of these topics we covered, please send those to us. Send those to me, feedback at theaudacitytopodcast.com or leave a voicemail at 903-231-2221. Or you can also go to theaudacitytopodcast.com and click on the send a voice message tab there and record a message right from your computer. And if there are questions about copyrights, trademarks, privacy policies, anything else that we did cover or didn't cover about podcasting or blogging and the law, then please ask those questions. And Gordon has offered that either he'll come back on for a full episode where we can have some question and answers about uh, podcasting and blogging and the law, or even if it's just something short and simple that I could send it to him as a question, and then he'll send back an answer either written or recorded. So if you have any questions, please let me know. Feedback at theaudacitytopodcast.com or 903-231-2221, or you can also go to theaudacitypodcast.com and click on the send a voice message tab and record your message right from the computer that way. And when you email, you can email written or recorded because if you're a podcaster, you probably want to record your voice and make it all nice sounding and everything. So that's fine for you to do that as well. Be sure to check out his site and check out his book too. I've been reading his book and it's it's really good. It's in depth, yes, but it is good to know this stuff. So you can check that out through my affiliate link at theaudacitytopodcast.com slash podcast law book. And let Gordon Firemark know that you've appreciated this series that we've done together. And follow him on Twitter, like he said, at gfiremark. And check out his site over at firemark.com slash noodle has a lot of links that are relevant to our conversation and uh, more information about him, his podcasts, and all of that. So check that out. Now, I've got a few little things I want to share with you. Again, just to remind you, uh, two repeating announcements. One is Blog World New York City is coming up. I'd love to see you there. If you want to register for that and attend the podcasting track, go to theaudacitytopodcast.com slash blogworld. And when you register, use the promo code GSPN10, GSPN10, and you'll get 10% off your registration then. I think all of the early bird sales have already expired. There might be one left that expires this week, um, the week of May 6th. And uh, you might be able to get that or it might have all expired, but you can still save 10% by using that promo code. And then please use my link when you register, theaudacitypodcast.com slash blogworld. I look forward to seeing you there. And uh, my friend Cliff Ravenscraft has actually asked me to take the lead on the panel discussions that we'll be having on Thursday, our podcasting 101 sessions. We'll have two sessions in the morning, I believe, and it'll be awesome. It will be Dave Jackson from schoolofpodcasting.com, Ray Ortega from thepodcasterstudio.com, two S's in the middle, and Dan Lyons 
uh, Dan Lyon from podcastlikearadiodj.com. So that'll be awesome. He's on Aussie, which is now he's moved out of Australia, though. But it'll be awesome to have all four of us together and your head is going to explode. So bring duct tape if you come to the Podcasting 101 session. Also, I've been doing this series of blog posts over at the Audacity to Podcast, and it's been pretty fun. It is daily podcasting photos. So these are things that I use in my workflow of podcasting almost every day or or it helps me prepare podcasting. Some of these things are tiny that you may have never thought of. Some of them are big, obvious things like, well, yeah, make sure, duh. But then there are other things like a tiny little headphone splitter or a particular application I use. It's fun for me to do because it's capturing these things in photos. And I hope it will be fun for you too to see these products and services that I use, why I like them, why I use them, why some of them I think are worth paying for and other things that I use for free or cheap things that I use to do great, cool things. So check that out over at theaudacitytopodcast.com. Last thing I'm going to mention, or two last things. One is keep an eye on Google Plus Hangouts on air. This is a brand new thing that they have announced. They're opening up to everyone starting today, May 7th, 2012. It's not open to everyone yet, but they'll roll it out slowly. This will be a service that will compete with Livestream and Ustream.tv for live streaming your podcast on the internet in video and audio form. That will be awesome because it looks like it will be mobile friendly. It definitely is something you can embed on your own site and it's Google and it probably won't have ads, probably not obtrusive ads like Livestream and Ustream are doing now. But I'll have more information about that later as I get to use it and get to try it uh, for testing and see what, how it works. And the last thing I want to mention is, this is going to be a shocker, I'm getting Adobe Audition. No, I am not switching away from Audacity yet. I am getting Audition in the Adobe Creative Cloud, which is their new service. And by the way, I have an affiliate link for Adobe if you want to buy anything from there. Go to noodle.mx slash adobe. But I am a web designer, as you know, freelance web designer for hire. If you'd like website design, let me know. But uh, I use all of their other apps like Photoshop and Illustrator and sometimes Dreamweaver and these other things. They've got this new service that allows me to actually get every single Creative Suite program they make for $30 a month for the first year, $50 a month after that. And considering that this means video production software like Premiere Pro and After Effects and so many other awesome programs, I thought it was definitely worth it. So in this is also Adobe Audition. This means coming up, I will give you an Audition CS6 versus Audacity comparison for podcasters. Because I know a lot of people love Audition and I'm looking forward to trying it. I'm going to legitimately try it and then let you know what works much better in Audition or what are, how, for a podcaster, basically, what are the pros and cons of each for a podcaster? So I'm really looking forward to that, and I hope you are too. And if you use Audition or have used Audition, then please send me emails, voicemails, whatever, with your tips, tricks, certain things that you like about Audition over Audacity or vice versa. Maybe you like Audacity more than Audition. Besides the price, that's the obvious thing. Yes, the price tag, $350 normally. 
But let me know. Send an email to feedback at theaudacitypodcast.com or call 903-231-2221. You can also go to the show notes for this episode, which will have the outline of stuff that Gordon talked about over at theaudacitytopodcast.com slash 80. And I'll get back to pretty soon talking about audacity for podcasters as well. And some really cool episodes planned for the future. I can't wait. Stuff like media hosting, stats comparisons, how to use Google Analytics, and much more coming in the future. So keep an eye out at theaudacitypodcast.com. And make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast in iTunes or whatever your favorite player is of choice and leave ratings and reviews there if you'd like. I'd love that too. Also, go to theaudacitypodcast.com and sign up for the email newsletter so you can get some of this stuff emailed to you ahead of time and know what's coming. Please follow me on twitter.com slash noodle, And I hope to see you in Blog World, New York City at the beginning of June. Now that I've given you some of the guts and taught you some of the tools, it's time for you to go podcast with passion, organization, and dialogue, and maybe even as a business. I'm Daniel J. Lewis. Thank you for listening. The Audacity Podcast is a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our podcasts over at noodle.mx. And the Audacity to Podcast is also a proud member of the Tech Podcast Network. If it's tech, it's here. Find more at techpodcasts.com.